0: Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. On July 25, 1946,
1: two African-American couples were pulled from a car and killed by a crowd near Monroe, Georgia. Each year, actors reenact the still-unprosecuted crime, reviving a disturbing chapter of the state's history.
0: The silence and the cover-up has come out of this idea that people need to be in polite conversation and always comfortable, but it's in discomfort is where you have the opportunity to evolve and to move past where you are.
1: I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on Second Thought, the director of Always in Season, a documentary that follows that crime and the legacy of racial violence for Black and white Americans. Plus, as many of us wonder when life will return to normal, author Bruce Filer urges us to rethink the whole concept. His new book, Life is in the Transition, draws wisdom from people who found meaning and acceptance in a world of upheaval. A toolkit for transitions and more coming up after the news. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The Equal Justice Initiative documents nearly 5,000 lynchings in America between 1877 and 1950, though the number is likely higher. The vast majority were African-American men. Many hanged in public events advertised on radio and in newspapers, like the killing of Claude Neal in 1934.
2: His body will be brought to the county seat nine miles from here and hung in the courthouse square for all to see. All white folks are invited to the party.
1: That's Danny Glover from the film Always in Season. The documentary also follows the annual reenactment of four people killed by a mob in Monroe, Georgia, in 1946, what is known as the Moore's Ford Lynchings. A socially distanced reenactment of that event takes place this Saturday, July 25th, at the Walton Oconee County Line. The film uses that historical context to follow the investigation of a 2014 death of a young black man found hanged that was officially ruled a suicide, though some investigators suspect it was a lynching. Activists press for investigations of similar hangings in California, Texas, and New York City after the murder of George Floyd this spring. Earlier this year, GPB hosted a screening of Always in Season, followed by a panel discussion on racial justice and reconciliation. Afterwards, I spoke to director and producer Jacqueline Olive about her film, which feels strikingly relevant to the national conversation about racial violence going on today. i warning here that lynchings are crimes of extreme brutality, and some details do come up in our conversation. So sensitive listeners and parents, please take note. Jacqueline Olive, thank you so much for being with us.
0: Thank you for having me, Virginia.
1: The film lays out this big-picture view of the legacy of lynching and stories of particular cases, namely one of interest to those in Georgia and elsewhere, the 1946 quadruple killing at Moore's Ford Bridge on the Walton Oconee line here in Georgia. First, can you give us a broad outline of what happened there?
0: Absolutely. Two couples, the Malcolms and the Dorseys, uh, were driven uh, into an ambush on the Ford Bridge. They were um, pulled out of a car, um, they were beaten, they were threatened with a noose, and then they were ultimately shot dozens of times. And most people um, uh, think of lynchings as simple hangings, but often uh, the victim may have been beaten, stabbed, hanged, shot, burned alive, or um or tortured in some other way, and it could. there were instances in which all of those things occurred in a single case. And so um, that, uh, that particular murder um, was a lynching, and uh, the reenactors have been dramatizing those events since 2005 to bring attention to this history.
1: Well, and the Biracial Memorial Commission put up a marker at that bridge. This was back in 99. This is something rarely done at the site of lynchings. But I want to talk about that reenactment. Here is some of the sound of it from your film jackie, what is what is happening here?
0: Yeah, so I filmed for three years with the reenactors and they start on a, a long uh, summer day and uh, dramatize the events at different sites and ultimately end up on the Mooresboard Bridge. And so what you're listening to is the sound of the reenactor really um, dramatically portraying what happened to the victims. And you can see um, folks in the crowd who are gathered with cameras to take photographs
1: Well, it is deeply distressing to witness. And we we learned in the film that mostly outsiders come, meaning not residents of Monroe. So there's this shroud of silence over these acts of racial violence, this particular one 70 years ago, that is still intact in this community. And you've been talking to communities across the country about reconciliation and restitution. Is there a story or an example that you've come across of that kind of shroud coming apart and people coming to the table to talk about this.
0: Absolutely. It's happened um, in community after community where we screen the film. Um, The the surprises for me when I started to to film in these communities, I filmed in eight or nine communities over eight years, starting in 2010. Um, Part of the surprise was how resonant um, the losses were for families who had had uh, family members lynched in the early 1900s, so decades and sometimes generations ago, it still is very traumatic for those families. In addition to there being really concrete consequences, there's the economic loss of folks like um, Anthony Crawford, who was lynched um, in Abbeville, South Carolina, and more than 400 acres of his land were stolen. There were eight, there are still. Um, economic consequences that reverberate for family members now, um, in addition to family ties being severed and all kinds of consequences. And so the extent of how, um, how immediate the emotions were, um, uh, was surprising in addition to the um, a degree of silence, as you mentioned, um, historically, there's been a lot of cover up around lynching and and even still in communities like Monroe, people just don't want to confront this history because they want to, to feel they feel as if they've gone. They've moved past these issues of, of racial violence. And for me, it's uh, important that communities acknowledge this history. It's a sign um, that they're willing to confront issues of racial division that are current and historic.
1: In addition to this reenactment, which is, you know, a visceral, you, you get the sense of the sheer physicality, you know, the feet being dragged along the ground, the, the, the screams. But there's also, read by Danny Glover, an eyewitness account of the torture of Claude Neal, the photos of charred, mutilated bodies in the film. It's profoundly disturbing. So, so how do you weigh their impact as a filmmaker showing these scenes?
0: It is very disturbing. It was important to me that we handle those images and the information directly. Uh, People shouldn't be comfortable with stories about lynching and should understand the violence without it being gratuitous. So giving people context and information and new ways to look at the images, for example. So lead editor um, Don Bernier, who was just amazing to collaborate with, he and I, we both decided that it was important to have a conversation about how spectators showed up um, in these stories and these narratives. And so not to just focus on the lynching victims, um, who were, by the way, um, when they were photographed, it was the Final way to strip the last bits of their humanity away. And so I was really conscious of not wanting to uh, re-victimize people in that way and to dehumanize people in that way, um, but to really start to, a conversation about how spectators and how um, lynchers showed up in this narrative so that we start to focus on um, how this dehumanization can lead to violence um, and to, to have a, a conversation about lynching that is evolved and that um, is elevated. Um, it's much more deep than than whether or not people are angry or who's angry and who isn't. Everyone has been impacted by this history. When uh, white men, women, and children came out to cheer on the violence, even when they thought it was a great idea, they still had to go home. Um, in their quiet moments, and acknowledge the fact that they witnessed murder, that they were complicit, that um, neighbors um, and people of authority were complicit. And so even when they are not consciously unpacking that, there are things that um, out of this trauma that are passed along. And so it's really important that we all come together for these conversations and start to really unpack um, um, in many ways and in complex ways um, how this history has affected us and, and, and what it looks like today and how it's showing up. Um, in institutions today.
1: You're listening to my earlier conversation with Jacqueline Olive, director and producer of the film Always in Season. One of the film's storyline follows the reenactment of the Moore's Ford lynchings here in Georgia. The annual event takes place this weekend, following social distance guidelines. We held a screening followed by a panel discussion here at GPB in February, and the conversation turned to discomfort. Dr. Thee Smith of Southern Truth and Reconciliation, or STAR, was among the panelists, and he said that STAR advised the NAACP against reenactments because they consider it a form of guilt-mongering. He warned that it would so far polarize white and black audiences that it would derail the trust-building that is part of the truth and reconciliation process. This opened up a robust discussion and some pushback from Cassandra Alexander-Green, director of the Moores-Ford lynching reenactment.
0: I understand you know, forgiveness, I'm in ministry, I understand all that, but you have to first acknowledge what has happened for me to get to that point where I can forgive you. I get it y'all, I get forgiveness, but you have to talk to me and let me know that I recognize that I did something wrong and that you want to be forgiven, not that you are above me and you don't have to ever ask for forgiveness. To this
1: question of, you know, why is everyone worried about making white people feel uncomfortable? Wondering how that came up in your conversations about restorative justice has been taking place in communities during these screenings.
0: So I I want to start by saying that the work that STAR is doing and Dr. C um, is doing is really um, valuable. It's really vital um, in communities there. And so when I talk about uh, a different opinion about how to approach this work, I think there are many ways that you can approach it. And it's important that we all um, look to doing the work of justice and reconciliation, um, however we can. Um, and, and then I'll say that that um, Cassandra, the other emotion that, uh, you know, all of those emotions around trauma are very much on the surface, particularly if you, um, if you are new to the material, you'll see that immediately in the film. And, and I came across that in not just Monroe and Atlanta, but in communities around the country, uh, where people were um, really concerned about Uh, addressing this history and directly um, unpacking the details uh, that they were concerned that it was dividing, that it would divide communities. What I found is that as people start to open up, it is because people are confronting all of these emotions, pain, anger, fear, guilt, and shame. They're all the, the feelings that I saw people encountering. I think it's really important that we're present with them, including guilt. And I think guilt is actually a very, um, when it's authentic, it's a very valuable and very powerful emotion because it tells you that there's a change that needs to happen. And and, and all of these emotions, we're all capable of um, handling. We're all capable of handling discomfort. It's important that we are uncomfortable. The silence and the cover-up has come out of this idea that people need to be in polite conversation and always comfortable, but it's the in discomfort is where you have the opportunity to evolve and to move past where you are.
1: Well, that is the big takeaway. This is not something that happened in the distant past, but a continued blight on the American psyche that we all live with. Cheryl and I, of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund speaks to that in your film.
0: One of the most disturbing legacies of lynching is generational trauma within the black and white communities and yet very different reactions to the stories in the two different communities. Both communities were covered in a shroud of silence. Blacks out of fear, whites out of shame, I think, and fear also. And that silence was never lifted. And so people are acting out in the context of that passed on relationship and they don't know what's at the heart of it. And there are all these institutions that need to come clean about this history.
1: So this is not a, you know, a black people problem or a black american grievance. So as you are engaging in communities, you're doing these impact encounters. Now that the film is being shown on PBS stations across the country, and I'm curious, you know, like how you get people to the table As we learn in the film, a bunch of the people who had volunteered to be reenactors the first time around in 2005, they they didn't show up the next day, that it is very difficult for people to show up for this kind of thing when there is a lot of pain. And even African-Americans in Monroe say, like, you know, why? I think they should just let the past be the past. So, Jacqueline, I'm wondering what it has been like for you in communities to speak with people. First, how do they let down all of the fear that is perceived of actually taking part?
0: Yeah, it's um, been this gradual wave, I think, for the nation to start to look at justice and reconciliation. I remember when I began filming in in 2010, Trayvon Martin had been gunned down. We hadn't really started as a country to even acknowledge racial violence that's going on now. And then there's the slew of police shootings and vigilante um, killings that are still going on that you see because of cell phone video. Um, And so people are um, increasingly starting to understand that this is, history is not um, ancient history. There's no wall between the past and what's going on now and are really looking at the threads. And so as we have been screening the film across the country, there have been amazing conversations where people... Um, showed up, at, didn't, not necessarily understanding how the stories would personally connect with their own lives. But by the end, we're talking very deeply for the first time about issues of race and racism and violence. And, and that, um, that we've had these, these conversations again and again is really exciting for me so that communities can start to imagine what repair looks like, um, in, in addition to pushing institutions for Um, financial restitution, for example. Um, It's also about what what we can do for each other and how we can show up for each other in our communities. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: What is it like for you, Jacqueline, as somebody who's witnessing this? You know, made this film, for one thing, for 10 years' time, a long slog, certainly, to hear people's vulnerabilities, to hear them show up in ways and talk about things that are so uncomfortable that many, many people just avoid them?
0: Yeah. Well, one of the things I learned about being a good filmmaking filmmaker and creating a film that can be um, extraordinary is that it requires as a filmmaker that I am vulnerable and that I put all of those vulnerable places um, into the story. And so that when I see people Showing up in that same way because they are concerned and, and, and then motivated to look closer at how they can do work, for example, in their communities and schools around issues of, of inequity and in education. Filmmaking so um, is something that I love. And so the process, even as heavy as the material can be, the process has always been really exciting for me making the film, the challenge of it all. Um, I've, I've always embraced in that um, And that I have met people during production who were confronting these issues have been inspiring, in addition to to now an impact and engagement um, where people are, despite the discomfort, showing up. It's just incredibly inspiring for me.
1: That was my earlier conversation with Jacqueline Olive, director and producer of the film Always in Season. It is now streaming from PBS's Independent Lens. The Moore's Ford lynching reenactment is going ahead this weekend with social distance precautions. You can find more information at gpb.org slash OST. The struggle against racial injustice and violence was a guiding force of Representative John Lewis's life. Since his death a week ago, tributes, photographs and stories of the beloved civil rights leader who was born a sharecropper's son and became known as the conscience of the Congress have proliferated across media. Last Sunday, a crowd of mourners holding candles lined John Lewis Freedom Parkway in Atlanta and marched through the district Lewis represented for more than three decades, ending beneath an enormous mural of a man whose moral character loomed large over the U.S. House and the nation.
2: He was a man of the people. He started his birth in the movement at 14 years old. When he heard the voice of Dr. King...
1: John Lewis helped change the course of history by getting into what he called good trouble, necessary trouble.
2: Say something, do something. Get in trouble, good trouble, necessary trouble.
1: At 23, he was the youngest speaker at the 1963 March on Washington.
2: Those who have said be patient and wait,
1: we must say that we cannot be
2: patient. We do not want our freedom gradually, but we want to be free now.
1: And a primary organizer of the 65 marches from Selma to Montgomery, which led to a violent confrontation on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, where state police brutally attacked demonstrators on what is known as Bloody Sunday. Lewis was elected to Congress in 1986. He announced six months ago that he would undergo treatment for pancreatic cancer. Weeks before that, Congressman Lewis spoke to Chuck Reese of the Bitter Southerner podcast.
2: You know, so I'd like to ask you, Congressman Lewis, the question that's at the heart of this episode. Can the South ever be redeemed from its history of slavery and white supremacy and oppression? Well, the South can be redeemed and the South will be redeemed. When you travel through the South today, you see an un- Believable place in the making. People are moving from the old ways of doing things to a new way. People are believing anew, and it's amazing to me. When I go back to rural Alabama, where I grew up, or travel through the state of Georgia or other parts in the South, I feel like we're more than lucky. We are blessed to see all of these smart, young people on the move. And many of the people that, that are not so young, they're moving with change. They want to help the South redeem. They want to make the South a better place. And in doing so, they will make our nation and our world a better place. The people in the South will not give up. They will not give in. They will not give out until we have transformed our region, made it a place for everybody, not just for a few, but for everybody. And today you see this unbelievable migration back to many parts of the Deep South. It's a good thing. And, you know, we, we learn from our past and we will make our future Much better for all of our citizens. But no one is left out or left behind because of their race or their color.
1: John Lewis there, longtime Georgia congressman and civil rights leader who died last Friday. Early in June, Congressman Lewis visited the Black Lives Matter mural in Washington. He told D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser that it was a powerful piece of art and added... I think the people in D.C. and around the nation are sending a mighty, powerful, and strong message to the world that we will get there. That was to be his last public outing. In the photograph, he's wearing a mask, holding a cane, and standing squarely in the middle of the street, a place of so many battles, beatings, and victories during his life. Thank you to the Bitter Southerner podcast for letting us share that clip. You can hear the full interview at gpb.org slash podcasts. And Betty Mae Fike singing Up Above My Head from the film about John Lewis called Good Trouble. You can find our conversation with the filmmakers at gpb.org slash OST. Coming up, bestselling author Bruce Filer is out with a timely book about getting through the disruptions, upheavals, and shakeups of contemporary life. Stay with us for what to do when the big bad wolf comes knocking. That's when On Second Thought Continues. I'm Virginia Prescott. I really do From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. When will life be normal again? That's perhaps the prevailing question of this unprecedented time. When will schools safely reopen? When will we be able to socialize, shop, and sit down at a restaurant for a meal without a mask or without fear? In his new book, Bruce Filer says disruptions and upheavals are the new normal, but we need new tools and skills to get through them. Feiler is author of six New York Times best-selling books. I spoke with him about his newest, Life is in the Transitions, Mastering Change at Any Age, for the Atlanta History Center's virtual author talk series. Feiler started the project that became this book a couple of years ago when he was experiencing a series of cascading crises. He calls them lifequakes, I asked him what was going on in his life.
3: Well, I appreciate that frame, like that we were having this conversation in a moment when the entire planet is going through a life quake. And a life quake, you know, it's a huge life change that's sort of higher on the Richter scale of consequences and has aftershocks for years. And as you say, I got interested in this topic because I went through a life quake. A few years ago, I was just kind of walloped by life. And not just one event, like over and over and over again. First, I got cancer as a 43-year-old new dad. Then my family's real estate business in Georgia was hit very hard by the recession. And then my dad in Savannah, who was suffering from Parkinson's, uh, tried to take his own life. Mm. And it was a kind of a scary, frightening. I mean, the way I think of it now is like the conversations we were having were sort of unhappable. And I'm the kind of person that when we go through, this kind, I go through this kind of experience, I want to seek out wisdom that other people have. And there wasn't really a book that I could find that really, I felt, helped me with what I was dealing with. But I thought there must be some wisdom out there. And so I set out on this journey. I ended up crisscrossing the country, collecting what became hundreds of life stories of Americans of all ages and all walks of life, people who lost homes, lost limbs you know, got got sober, got out of bad marriages, a two-time cancer survivor who climbed Mount Everest, military veterans who lost limbs in the war. And at at the end of every one of these conversations, which was two, three, four hours, I would say, who else do you know? And it sort of metastasized and spread and spread until I ultimately had 225 life stories, all 50 states. And then I was like, okay, I have this trope, but what am I going to do? And I did something I had not done in 30 years of writing books, which is I assembled a team of 12 people. Uh, they were undergraduates and graduates, computer scientists and poets. And we kind of combed through these stories, digging out themes and patterns and then arguing about them and debating. I'm like double checking the, the transcripts for what became the big idea in the book. I didn't set out this way, which is we all go through these disruptive life events and they lead to life transitions. And what can I learn about life transitions from looking at all these conversations?
1: Mm -hmm. And you use the term, the Italian term, Lupus in fabula, that's the, the big...
3: I don't, I don't use it with that good of an accent. You know, I,
1: I worked on this a little bit, Bruce. <laughs> the big bad wolf at the door that knocks fairy tales into complete turmoil and found that part of the upset around disruption was about the expectations of what should be happening in people's lives that didn't match reality. So where did these embedded and, and really rigid, as you found, constructs about the shape life should take come from?
3: So if you're listening to this conversation, like, pause for a second and listen to the story that's going on in your head. It's the story about where you came from and where you're going, what your dreams are. If, if you had a call right now and you had to rush to the hospital in some sort of an emergency, what would be going on in your head? Like, that story that you tell yourself, that is the story of your life. And one thing we've learned in the last sort of, you know, decade, generation, is that that story isn't just part of you. It is you in a fundamental way. Life is the story that you tell yourself. And but the, when we think about that story, like the first time we begin to tell that story when we're young or we're adolescents, we think of it in terms of superheroes, right? Or fairy tales, right? We're the hero and we're going to have a happy ending. But what, but unfortunately, not only is that not the way it works in our lives, that's also not the way it works in fairy tales. Like what happens in the fairy tale is that the wolf shows up, right? So in our lives, there is this conflict that appears. It's a wolf. It's a dragon. It's an ogre. It's a downsizing. It's a diagnosis. It's a tornado. It's a pandemic. And our instinct is to say that this is kind of ruining or upsetting, I think, as you said, our life story. But it turns out that that is what makes it a story. Like there is no story without conflict. And there's no conflict without a resolution. So this is what makes us the hero of our, our story is how we deal with this conflict. And so kind of this underwriting theme of, the, of this entire project was what happens when our fairy tales go wrong? And you mentioned this thing about a shape of your life because there was this moment and suddenly I discovered that there's this idea that we never talk about, or at least that I never heard about, which is that our lives take a certain kind of paradigmatic shape. So in the ancient world, like they didn't have time. So they thought that life was a cycle. It mm-hmm. followed farming. And the Middle Ages, and as you know, I have the images of this and life is in the transitions. They thought life was a staircase up to middle age and a staircase down. So think about that. That's no new love at 40. That's no a new venture at 50 or relocating, you know, to a retirement home and finding it. It's like straight up and then straight down. And then for the last hundred years, since the birth of science, we have been told that our lives should, back to your phrase, you know, the should train, should follow a linear arrow of progress. So Freud has stages of development, Piaget, children's development, Erickson, the eight stages of development. And he says, this is modeled on the conveyor belt. Like, that's the way industry worked. And that's how people talked about their lives. And this reaches its peak in the 70s with Gail Sheehy, who writes passages that all of our mothers read that says... Everyone does the same thing in their 20s. Everyone does the same thing in their 30s. Everyone has a midlife crisis from 39 and a half to 45. And this bursts this idea that our lives are linear, kind of locks it into place. Mm-hmm. This turns out to be bunk. At least it's irrelevant. I can't address whether it was true then. I doubt it. Um, and a bunch of researchers uh, proved that it wasn't the case. But it's no longer relevant to our lives today. So what my data show is that we all have three dozen disruptors in our lives, Okay, Most of them we get through. It could be an accident, a job change, you know, have, getting married, having a baby. Most of them we get through. But three to five times in our lives, one of these becomes a massive change. It becomes a lifequake. And then it really begins to reorient everything in our lives. And as you said, I've been working on this project for five years, and I'm publishing it this week when, lo and behold, the entire planet is in a lifequake at the same yeah. time.
1: Well, right, so this trajectory that you're talking about, it allows no exceptions. You get one shot and the clock is ticking. And right. I, I think that, that is what leads to so much misery for people thinking that I should be at this stage in my life or what what happened to these dreams that I had. But all of this, as you point out, was forged at a time when ideas of marriage and belief systems and sexual identity and work were fixed. Now that is all blown apart. That's that's what comes across to me in this book, Stronger Than Anything, and with this unprecedented technology this political unrest and an epidemic so so then if we don't have that linear shape what is the shape of our life now
3: so i this was to me this was you know the last question i asked everybody in these conversations is what shape is your life and what what and people gave me all sorts of answers in fact i was recollecting that one of the first people if you would ask me what shape is your life you've now read this book let me just ask you that as a kind of a placeholder here
1: um You know what? I came up with onion, you know, because there's layers and layers and layers and layers.
3: Right. So this is what happened to me. So if you'd asked me the shape of my life at the beginning, I would have said a line. It would have gone up and down. And so I know this guy. His name is Michelangelo. He's actually in this book. And I said to him, you know, in this beginning, when I was beginning to realize our lives take all different shapes, I said, what shape is your life? And he said, a heart. I was like, no, no, no. You don't really understand. I'm asking you, like, what shape has your life taken He said, it's a heart. And I was like, no, you're wrong. I'm asking you, like, the trajectory, the dementia. And he said, no, Bruce, you're wrong. Because I don't evaluate my life on its professional ups and downs. Mm. I evaluate it based on relationships. So for me, that's the one thing that's stable. And it was sort of like, whoa. Whoa. I'm not thinking about this in the right way. And so I asked everybody what shape is your life. I got up and down lines, jags. I got hearts. I got, I got uh, light bulbs. I just got an onion. Um, I got planets. I got suns. I got a house. And ultimately what I realized is that these shapes fall into certain buckets. Okay. And the, so there are people who say, as I would have said, a line. Okay. And these are people who are doers or makers or creators or very kind of achievement oriented people. Then there are people who are relationship-oriented. They have these buckets, okay? So Michael with his heart, other people said a house. What I eventually realize is that these, fall in, these buckets correspond to what I've come to call the ABCs of meaning. So the A is agency. Like that's our work lives, things that we do that we're responsible for. Our B is belonging, our relationships, community, friends, neighbors, religious institutions, whatever they might be. And our C is our calling. It's a purpose. It's something higher than ourselves, and the essence of this gets to your question, which is: a hundred years ago, we more or less had to live where our parents wanted us to live, believe what our parents wanted us to believe, do what our parents marry who our parents want. Like we were on a should train from a very early age. The good news is is that we've been freed from that. We can live whatever sexual orientation, belief system, career we want to live. The problem is that that's a burden because it puts the the, kind of the force on us to figure out who we want to be, what story we want to tell. So one thing I learned in this whole process is that when we go through these kinds of lifequakes is we kind of rebalance the ABCs of meaning.
1: Okay, so let's go back to that. This idea that We do not have the toolkit, uh, as you say in the book, for the life that we are living. It is a non-linear life. We're going to encounter more transitions because things are not expected. They're not moving along this conveyor belt that they once moved along, even if they did. So you you also spend some time in the book talking about how the natural world cycles through chaos and order. And humans... Are likewise wired for that kind of change. So getting through that is a skill. The transitions are a skill that we can and must master. So where, especially now as we are all living in complete, you know, a very different life than we were living just a couple of months ago, where do we begin?
3: So the life quakes that we have in our lives can be involuntary, which is what we're doing now, okay? You know, maybe we lost a job. Maybe our spouse leaves us. Maybe we had an accident or got a diagnosis. But the, the lifequakes can also be voluntary. Maybe we choose to move, okay? Maybe we want to have children. Maybe we want to start a new venture. So the lifequake, the kind of the blunt force of change, can be voluntary or involuntary. But the first step is that the life transition that comes out of it must be voluntary. You have to lean into the idea that you're going to go through this process of change and get yourself to a new place. You might feel one of two things. You might feel manic, like I have to do 17 things at one. Mm-hmm. Or you might feel I'm in a fetal position, I'm stuck, and I can't do anything. But look at enough of these, as I did in you know hundreds and hundreds of conversations and hours of conversations uh, with people, and they, and certain patterns begin to appear. So the first thing that I learned is that transitions have themselves a shape. <laughs> okay, so that they are there are three stages to a transition. There's what I call the long goodbye, where you have to kind of confront your emotions and say goodbye to the old you. There's this messy middle where you begin to shed certain habits and experiment with new ones. And then there's the new beginning where you finally are at the end and you unveil your new self. And when I tell you, Virginia, that everything written about transitions for the last hundred years said, you must do these stages in order. <laughs> First, you say goodbye. Then you go through the middle. Then you – this also turns out to be wrong because it turns out that each of us is kind of good at one of these phases. I call it your transition superpower. In bad, I, I was um, – I, I interviewed this woman, Nina Collins. Her mother died at 19. She was already living in Europe by herself. She's very independent. She had to move back to care of her mother. She's been through three marriages and twice as many careers. And she said, I underattached to things. I'm actually quite good at saying goodbye. <laughs> um, and um, then I get stuck in the messy middle. I talked to this guy, Rob Adams, who was a management consultant. He was hired to run the Simon Pierce Glass Company in, in, um, in Vermont, moves his family. He starts work a month after the Great Recession. Sales dropped by a third in the first quarter. It, it takes him a year to realize it's not going to work. He said, I really hated saying goodbye. Like, I loved... Um, I love being a mentor and being a leader and being a coach. But once I got to the messy middle, like I was good at that. Like I'm a consultant. I made lists and I moved my family to Africa and I ran a nonprofit. So people, you know, so maybe you're a people pleaser. Maybe you're conflict averse. Maybe you're bad at saying goodbye. Maybe you're bad at the middle. And then somebody, I did this interview, this woman, Lisa Ludovici, mm-hmm. she became, and she went to work at AOL, like in the first month and became a pretty high powered internet ad executive. But her entire life, she had three migraines a week since she was three. She logs onto a conference call one day. Mm-hmm. Her, her colleagues didn't know she was there. They said how sour she was. She walked home. She quit on the spot the next day. A week or so in, watches someone talking about being a life coach, and she says, "That's what I want to do." She goes to Santa Fe and rolls in a course. On day one, she's got her head down. The teacher says, "What are you doing?" She's like, "I have a migraine." Don't worry. Teacher's like, "Come with me. Put you in a chair." hypnotizes her. She's never had a migraine since, and today she's the country's leading medical hypnotist, working with veterans across the country. It took her, this was a huge career change, incredibly successful. She was really embarrassed to update her LinkedIn profile because she thought her, you know, her friends and colleagues would think it was weird. So she was bad at the new beginning, is the point of all this. You would think that people would be relieved. She, she said, I wrote and rewrote and would not update my LinkedIn profile Finally, I pressed send and I felt a lot of relief. So different people find different parts of it good and bad. And one of the things I try to do in the book is walk you through the process of identifying which phase you're good at, which you're bad at, and let's start with the good phase and build some momentum as you go through this life transition.
1: That is author Bruce Feiler. Our conversation was recorded for the Atlanta History Center's Virtual Author Talk series. His latest book, Life is in the Transitions, analyzed how hundreds of people across the country got through massive upheavals in their lives. We'll be back with skills to embrace change after a short break. This is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott, returning to my conversation with Bruce Feiler on his latest book, Life is in the Transitions, Mastering Change at Any Age. Bruce and his team analyzed stories from hundreds of people and found that contemporary life involves more disruptions and upheavals than we expect. Fortunately, the human brain is flexible, and we can, and he says must, master the skills of transitions. I spoke with him for the Atlanta History Center's virtual author talk series and included some questions from the audience, which you'll hear. Let's get back to my conversation with Bruce Feiler, recorded on Zoom. Well, the country is now wading through this huge upheaval, reckoning with centuries of racial injustice, confronting critical questions about the role of government in a pandemic, um, about policing. Can can we lift tools from your findings to collectively navigate transitions, or does it require everybody to be on board?
3: So I love this question, and I've been I've been kind of waiting on my book tour here for someone to ask me, and no one to ask me. So I'm like so excited to talk about this. So I divided my life quotes, as you know, between a voluntary and involuntary, and I then have personal and collective. Okay, so the biggest category was personal involuntary. So personal involuntary would be things like uh, a diagnosis um, or an accident or getting fired. Then the next biggest category was personal voluntary. Okay. It's not like your spouse cheats on you. Personal voluntary is you cheat on your spouse. You change religions. You move. The other two, the collective ones were smaller. Okay. Collective voluntary would be like the women's rights movement or, you know, some sort of social justice movement where you choose to do it. And involuntary collective is like a tornado. 9-11 came up um, and there's a line, but those were both small, like in the single digits. Had I done these conversations a century ago two world wars, depression, mm-hmm. that we would have had many more collective lifequakes. And we're in a time where people are me oriented cut to 2020, right? As you said, this book was, I've been working on this for five years. I look at the protest movement and the pandemic as different, okay? So I see the pandemic as a collective involuntary lifequake, okay? It's something that's happening to us. But I see the protest movement as a collective voluntary lifequake because people are choosing to do it. And so, but to to your question of are these tools relevant, I would say absolutely yes, and I learned this because I was absolutely wrong. When I went into this, I assumed that how you deal with a medical life quake or a professional one, I would have thought that religion versus sexual identity versus work versus medical would be a different toolkit. And Virginia, I was just flat wrong. Like, it turns out that the tools are the same. So I would say that the tools for dealing with a collective involuntary life quake, like the pandemic, and a collective voluntary life quake, like this reckoning we're having with centuries of, of racial injustice... But that is a voluntary reckoning that people are doing. But yes, I think the toolkit for how to, how to get through it turns out to be the same.
1: That leads to a question. Uh, Laura asks, Ken Burns has said that history does not repeat itself, but it rhymes. When we go through these lifequakes, do we look at the rhymes or examples in history or other kinds of stories or even myths? And this is something that, you know, we see in the book that we do have this framework for getting lost in the messy middle from stories we carry from the ancient world, right? Oedipus, Odysseus, Buddha, uh, even Little Red Riding Hood and the Big Bad Wolf. Is it essential to go through to be lost and, and, and a mess, as one of your storytellers told you, uh, to spend a year drinking wine, eating French fries, and binge watching TV every night?
3: <laughs> Gina Bianchini, who was running Ning and and uh, um, in, and in, in, in had a high profile job with Mark Andreessen in Silicon Valley, and then he fired her, and she said, "I just really wanted to drink wine and eat French fries, and really all I cared about was the French fries." Um, well, I want to say I want to say this about that. I want to say that yes the great scriptural stories, right? I've spent a lot of time around religion. Uh, Certainly the biblical story, when Abraham leaves the promised land, uh, leaves his family and goes down to the promised land. The Israelites leave Egypt and go into the wilderness. The Jerusalemites go by the rivers of Babylon. Jesus goes into the desert. The Buddha does this. Hindus have it with forest dwelling. They have this element. Certainly all the myths, as you say, Odysseus, Orpheus, Hercules, they all go into the wilderness. And I think that, 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 that the slight tweak, I would say, is how we think about the wilderness, okay? So kind of one of my sort of, I don't know, I call it my moonshot dream in this book is, you know, if what I found is so striking, which is we're going to have three to five of these life breaks, they're going to take three, four, five years, that's 25 years, that's half of our adult lives we're spending in transition. And if we see these periods as difficult periods that we have to grit and grind you know, and sort of push our way through, then we're missing the opportunity which it, that is before us, which is to look at these, yes, as difficult periods, but also as periods of growth and renewal. And the reason my book is called Life is in the Transitions is that's a William James phrase from the origins of psychology 100 years ago, and he understood this in a way that we've lost. He said life is in the transitions even more than in the stable parts that it connects. And that's really what I'm trying to do is kind of rebrand these periods as vital periods where, where we are as alive as we are in any other part of our life. And if we look at that, then we're going to begin to understand, wow, I can make something in this period. We need to look at transitions as a skill that we can master because, frankly, the moment we're in right now, it's the most essential life skill that any of us needs.
1: John wants to know, you mentioned the, how the life is, for children is full of superheroes. What stories for children and young adults might be better suited to help them envision life transitions in a more helpful manner? Do we need
3: m- new stories? Yes, you need new stories, but you don't need to buy them in a library. You need to tell them at the dinner table. Okay? <laughs> you need to go get grandma and grandpa and have them tell stories. You need to take them to the cemetery. I literally have this thing about, like, take your kids to the cemetery day. Like, take them to the, your kids to the cemetery and tell stories about people that they know. We know from research at Emory, Robin Fivish uh, does research into adolescent narrative um, right there in Atlanta. This is when, when children begin to tell a story about themselves. Robin and her colleague, Marshall Duke, uh, did research uh, back in 2001 in which they asked children of, 20 questions that I've since called the do you know test. Uh, Do you know where your grandparents were born? Do you know an aunt or an uncle who had an illness that they overcame? Do you know what was happening when your parents uh, met or when you were born? And children who knew more about their family history, it was the number one predictor of a child's emotional well-being. Mm -hmm. Like the number one question when I talk about this family family story stuff is like, you know, what happens if the kids are adopted? Well, it turns out that Marshall Duke has natural-born children and adopted children, and it's not passed down through the blood. These are stories that you tell. So that, yes, the stories that you want to tell your children are the stories from their relatives, people that they know. Grandpa was the first to come here. He worked very hard. He became the vice president of a bank. His house burned down. You know, his daughter was the first woman in her generation to go to college. She got breast cancer. You want to tell them your own family stories. And now, what I have learned in this process is that it's your own life story. You want to tell that to your children. One things I do in the back of the book is I have the template that I use for all these life story interviews because every single person whose life story I gathered followed up and said they wanted to do this template with somebody else. Mm-hmm. This idea of sharing your story, you would think in this world where like, people are posting on, on social media and you know, like the idea of tell your story is ubiquitous. But really, it's not. It, it turns out that we need to spend even more time telling our stories to ourselves, to our loved ones, and yes, to our children too.
1: Yeah, maybe less, a, a little less bright and shiny. Uh, yes,
3: exactly, in an age-appropriate way. You know, bring out the skeletons because you know, for me at least, Michelle Martin asked me like, "Why don't you put all this stuff?" Like, you're writing about your stuff. We're page one. You're talking about cancer. You know, you're talking about family secrets. And I said, because I was asking other people to be vulnerable and I can't ask them to be vulnerable um, without being vulnerable myself. And because I do not want to be part of any shame, of stigmatizing the stories of people that I talked to, people who were in cults, people who were in hate groups. So I want to have no part in shame. I want to break down the stigma because I, whatever you're dealing with right now, I can almost assure you, I talked to somebody who had it a lot worse mm-hmm. and they got through it. And so can you.
1: A message of hope there from best-selling author Bruce Feiler from our Atlanta History Center virtual author talk. You can watch the full talk or find a link to more on the book "Life Is in the Transitions" at gpb.org/ost. On Second Thought is produced by Priya Mahadevan. Supervising producer is Amelia Brock. Special thanks to Jake Troyer this week. Jesse Neiswanger and Jake are our engineers. Our intern is Chase McGee. Executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. And I'm Virginia Prescott. With a big favor to ask. If you enjoy the show, please take a minute to rate us on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the podcast. I promise it's much easier than revising your life story, and it really helps other people find the show. We would be so grateful for the help and always grateful that you spend some time with On Second Thought. Stay safe, stay in touch. Just ask your smart speaker to play GPB.